Welcome back to the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comic books and graphic novels. On episodes like this, we like to talk to fantastic creators who make the magic happen. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by the fabulous mind behind such comics as Legion of X, The Spire, X-Men Legacy, and my personal favorites, Step by Bloody Step, The Dreaming, Battle World's Marvel Zombies, Damn Them All, John Constantine, Hell Blazer, Constantine, Not Team. All right, sorry, Sai. <laughs> and the returning hit indie series, Coda, Sai Sperrier. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you very much. It always makes me feel old when people rattle off my credits. Oh, uh, yeah. I could have kept going, it turns out. <laughs> I think it's great just having so many. You have such a wide range of genres you t- touch on. Um, and I think it's great that you just are just doing something you love and hitting on everywhere you can. Yeah, well, that's the privilege, isn't it? Being a writer, you know, you're you're sort of able to do multiple projects at once. Um, yeah. I have the privilege of been doing some some sort of uh, work for hire with like superhero characters, uh, characters that I have sort of stored up nostalgia for that mean something to me, but don't don't give me any sort of creative license in the way that doing something purely creative owned does. Um, right. So yeah, that's a that's a real privilege. Artists, I suspect, get quite fed up working on one thing at a time and sort of always itching for the next job. Whereas I can be doing multiple things. It does get a little bit exhausting, but it's great fun. How do you end up managing that? If you don't mind me asking, you know, the balance of the I exhausting mean, you work. You make and... assumptions that I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you look like you have yourself together. I'm no, just making no. assumptions. <laughs> I'm not wearing any trousers under here. Just <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's a lot. And, and for instance, right now, you find me in the midst of a, a period of, of really unforgiving crunch. I took on too many jobs. It's that simple. Um, I received a series of opportunities any one of which would have been the sort of job that you can't say no to. Um, I like to think that as I get older and spend more time in this industry, I'm better at saying no to things because that's, that's always the skill that that none of us really have when we first start out in, in freelancing. Um, But in this case, yeah, every single damn, damn one of these projects was a, a, an absolute no brainer. So (laughs) I've ended up kind of packing them all in, um, still doing good work i think that's the real the real alarm bell starts ringing when you're so overworked that the work itself is no good yeah um there are weeks when i just don't enjoy it which is a real shame um but i think it's okay and it, it starts to ease off a bit i go from doing sort of five books to four then three and then two and maybe at that point more will start coming along maybe i'll deliberately take some time just to focus on a couple of, of sort of cherished projects. But right now it's just juggle, juggle, juggle. Two yeah. young kids as well. So so yeah, no, um to your question, uh I don't manage. I just <laughs> stumble on clinging to life by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> well, I'm glad you stay afloat. And it's always nice, you know, talk to creators and hearing how they're doing. Um because I think a lot of people forget that creators are human beings, especially when you're online, you know, it's like that mask of digital technology between us yeah so. I, I mean i i hate playing that game honestly like yeah. uh, uh, there's i always say there's two types of creators and i think this is more true of writers than it is of artists there's writers who like to stand in front of their art or their work and there's writers who like to stand behind their work and i've always been somebody who'd rather stand behind my work i'm not pretending to be some trendy guru whose opinions (laughs) about fashion matter uh it doesn't matter what i'm watching on telly or what music i'm listening to those things aren't relevant to whether or not you enjoy my work and the things that i have to say in my work um 
I have time for the other sort of creator. Some of my very favorite creators are those sorts of people, but but that's not me. Um, I would rather sort of have something to say than something to prove. So, um, yeah, I'm just a human doing a job. It always it always sort of amuses me and horrifies me. This is a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. Sure. When when you sort of accept that the the most common metric for success, whatever that looks like, in our Western capitalist society is whether or not you're fucking minted, right? And I am not. <laughs> I am not a wealthy individual. And I go to shows, and it's it's a great privilege to come face to face with the readers because that's a that's a filter that very rarely gets broken. Um, again, side note: if I'm sitting at my desk thinking about my job in a purely sort of transactional way, my client is the publisher or maybe the retailer. It's not often that I get face-to-face -face with the people who are literally paying my taxes, uh, sorry, paying my, my, like, my mortgage, my wages. So going to a, a show is fantastic. You get to meet these people, you get to shake some hands, you get to have conversations on a very human level. But it always freaks me out when the people who are being really gushy, you know, like I, I'm very bad at receiving compliments and, and I get all sort of flustered and very Hugh Granty and British when it happens. But some of these people are like, you know, surgeons or, or people, accountants, politicians, whatever the hell, people who are by a, a sort of more um, standard conventional metric of society, exceptionally successful people. And they're standing there going, oh, my God, you did this, you did that. You changed my life when you did this. And I'm, like, cringing because, <laughs> because these are more important people than I am. So it is a bit of a head fuck. It's a strange thing to, to sort of figure your way through. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't like this, this sort of approach to the artist being some sort of mysterious unknowable brand identity that that is always slightly aloof and arch that's yeah. that just doesn't get you anywhere in my view no we all can't be jared leto you know <laughs> <laughs> um but we're here to talk about Kodo, so let's uh get into that a little bit um do you want to give us the pitch for new people who are like oh what's Kodo? i've heard of it i saw the art we love matthias Pagato around here um what's going on Sai? what is Kodo? I mean, good question. Uh, before I get to that, to your point, oh, the, sure. the, the great thing about working with Matty is that uh, when people ask me what's Coda about, if we're face to face and I've got the book in front of me, the best answer is just look, <laughs> just look, because <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter what it's about. You'll be lost and spellbound straight away because it's such a beautiful book. Um, for my part, uh, I guess... Starting with the world building, like Coda is to cliche ridden archetypical fantasy worlds of the form Dungeons and Dragons. It is to that as Mad Max is to our world, mm. which is to say that you start with a world that has its rules and its regulations and it's the things that make it tick. In, in those sort of bad high fantasy cliche universes, it's magic and monsters and high chivalry and all those sort of borrowed semi-historical, semi-mythological ideas. Um, and then there's an apocalypse. And in the case of Coda, it's like, you know, that, that sort of lazy fantasy trope of uh, a dark lord arises with hordes of darkness intent on destroying the world. Well, he did. He won. He <laughs> succeeded. Well done. Round of applause. And then this is the story of what happens next. And it's, it's a world that previously ran 
because of magic. And now there's no magic left. It, it sort of exists in scavenged little sort of dirty doses. Like if, you, if you're lucky enough to find the tip of an old wizard's staff, you might be able to grind it up and turn it into some magic potions. But it's, it's really pathetic and, and sort of addictive and mutating. And it's a really grim and yet strangely beautiful world where people are just sort of muddling through and trying to get on with their lives. And our, our story focuses initially on one character, a, a sort of former bard. Um, we don't know his real name, but he goes by the name Hum because all he says is, hmm, that's like, he's, <laughs> he's quite taciturn. But he keeps a diary. And despite being relatively monosyllabic in the flesh, he's extremely erudite when he's writing. Um, his whole thing in the first story is that he's looking for his wife and he sort of tells himself and his diary that she's been taken captive by some savage orc type people. And we slowly realize that he's, he's a consummate liar. He lies to himself. He lies to his audience. He lies to everybody around him. And, and it slowly turns out that what's actually going on is that his wife is an orc. He loves her desperately but he can't bear it when she enters these phases of sort of berserk fury, which is part and parcel of who she is. So the whole story, which which takes in like big world-shaking nonsense, which like he rolls his eyes at because that's that's the stuff of the old world, the sort of fantasy crap where people are always threatening the status <laughs> quo. That's all rumbling on in the background, but really it's just the story of this guy and his wife coming to terms with the fact that they love each other despite being totally different and arguably not really right for each other and just sort of trying to be good and kind to each other and to themselves and to the world around them. And P.S. there's a mutant unicorn with five horns, technically a pentacorn, <laughs> which can do nothing but shout swear words. And it's just, it's a, it's a really trippy, mad story which I think works as well as it seems to have worked because it's so grounded by intimate and recognizable human emotion, the, the, the sort of dynamics of the relationship at the heart of it all. Um, and I'm aware I'm waffling, but to sort of jump to the point, you can tell just from the way I'm speaking of it that this is a world I love. These are characters I love. Matthias wants nothing except to stay in this world and draw it. And so we were surprised and genuinely delighted that over the course of its life, Coda has spread out. It's been translated into more languages than any other book I've ever done. Everywhere that it goes, it comes back adored. And so we were like, should we do some more? And the publishers bit our hands off and, and yeah, away we go. So that's, that's where we come to now. We're, we're given the opportunity to, to start with a new number one. That's excellent. Um, I definitely think the story is very beautiful. I love the, it's like such a high fantasy story, which like you were saying, it really grounds you with the humanity of the characters. And I think it's really nice, or at least the trend I saw in the comic was that every time a good deed was done, it, like kind of was what perpetuated the story to continue. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but my favorite moment was when um, Hum <laughs> scratches the arse of the giant skeleton dragon. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is just that moment. I was like, this is just a kind moment. This is what comics are all about. Just spreading kindness and love. So I really, really enjoyed that book. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's a, it's funny. I sort of, again, no spoilers, literally the first page <laughs> of the first issue, it starts with this like skeletal remains of a dragon, which is unable to die because it's a dragon, a dragon. It's just been lying there in the desert for years, screaming at anybody who passes because its ass is itchy. And like, please itch my ass. And everybody's like, you haven't got an ass anymore. What's wrong with you? And, and yeah, as you say, our central character at some point actually does scratch the, the, the ass. And it, it sort of, in a strange way, saves his life. It sort of sets up, you know, no good deed goes unrewarded kind of vibe um yeah and and that despite it being such a grim world and such a sort of um i don't want to say hopeless because it's really the opposite of that but such a challenging environment for all these characters we really do focus on the simple stuff the kind of can you just do something right every day can you be kind and that's that's sort of where we go with the second series two we come in with these two characters still desperately in love, still sort of muddling through their awkward relationship, <laughs> both with quite different preoccupations. They both sort of encounter, um, I guess the, the unifying theme is that in a world where everything seems broken and difficult and hopeless, people are always looking for somebody who will promise them a new beginning. Um, whether it's um, something religious or metaphysical that promises to fix all of their problems or something more mundane and um, kind of force-oriented that will fix all the, the mundane problems in their lives, or even if it's just somebody to blame, there's always somebody who's trying to sell you something that will improve your life without you having to do anything other than yeah. stand up and wave your hand. And they both encounter very different versions of that story and what happens next and, and that's sort of the the beginning the beginning of coda number two that's awesome i love that i think it feels like the very natural next step for the story um but for new readers who are gonna hop in maybe now instead of at the beginning mm-hmm. did you find yourself doing something somewhere in the first volume where the first volume of coda it felt like you were doing a lot of world building um to like really introduce the story before the story kicks off and the signing incident is really at the end of that volume, yep. it felt like. Are you doing something similar, do you think, with this volume? Um, or is this something where you found a different type of balance so you could balance the new readers and the in or the returning readers? I mean it's a great question. Um it's more it's more the latter. It's about user friendliness, it's about um not repeating any beats, it's about finding the things about the world that are strictly necessary to tell people so that we can drop straight back into the story. Um, and I've, you know, without, without getting braggy about it, I've, I've, (laughs) I've earned my chops with world building. I think I know what I'm talking about when it comes to world building. And I, I sort of, um, I have found that the more elaborate and functional your world is, the less important it is that your story hinges upon it. The Mm. easier it becomes to push it into the background and focus on the stuff that matters. Because readers will be so focused on the important stuff, the character interactions, the things that are going on, that the, the functional realities of this world they inhabit will just sort of be absorbed by osmosis. Right. And if you need fucking Star Wars crawls and 
30 pages of maps, uh, diagrams to explain what a monster does, all of that stuff, then you know, there's a place for that. And, and a certain mindset of reader will lap that stuff up. But I think it's probably not healthy as a storyteller, because every time you pin something down like that, you're, you're reducing your options. It's like entropy in a, in a sort of fictional reality. Um, so I resist that. And I guess this time around, I mean, the, the, the bad metaphor that I used with, um, the publishers when I pitched them, this was, you remember the, um, what's it called? Firefly. Firefly started out as a, like a, a long, was it two, a two season series that eventually got canceled. And then they right, came yeah. along with the movie Serenity. And a lot of like, in my case, I saw the movie long before I went back and watched the series. And, and it, that's the sort of mentality I'm toying with here. If the first 12 issue arc of Coda is the sort of the series that sets it all up and goes into all the fiddly detail, then this is a very distinct story that distills a lot of the really important emotional beats and resolves a bunch of stuff. But the two things exist in their own right, as well as overlapping in, in some fairly serious ways. So, um, it's just sort of telling a slightly different vibe of story, I guess. Okay. I think that makes sense. I think, um, yeah, it would be a lot of like restrictions or feel restricting as a writer, I suppose, for that to happen. So um, changing gears just a little bit, mm. but speaking of vibes, uh, you have like a four, I want to say four books out right now, right? Coda, you'll have The Flash, Uncanny, Spider-Man, and Damn Them All. Yep. And you're jumping really between high fantasy, low fantasy, and superhero shenanigans. Um, not, to, not that superhero shenanigans is, you know, lower or anything i think they're all on par different genres all excel um but how do you approach them differently fantasy to superheroics and then like low and high fantasy you just have to i think it's a skill you learn i don't think it's a skill you come to the game with the the skill is changing gears it's that simple and, and you know we talked before about um, whether or not one can describe oneself as managing <laughs> under the stress of it all and that's very much part of it. It's um, if I finish writing an issue of The Flash halfway through a Tuesday, can I conceivably pick up the first issue of Damn Them All straight away, or do I need to go and have a long walk and sort of reset? And and it's that more often than not. That being said, you do find interesting sort of emergent motifs starting to bubble up like i mean i i can't think of one off the top of my head but the number of times i'm sitting here writing x project and suddenly go oh this was a thought that comes from y project you know the <laughs> themes the things that i'm interested in this week they do have a tendency to find their way into multiple projects hopefully in ways that don't feel like i've got some sort of um, Idee fix that I keep coming back to. They're always transitioning slightly through the filter of each of these different projects. Um, but yeah, like a couple of years ago, everything I wrote was about babies because obvious <laughs> reasons. You yeah. know, I was becoming a father, and and it's that obvious. Things that become interesting to me keep on bubbling up, um, and I guess that's. I'm making this up as I go. By the way, this is a new thought. I guess that's a reflection of the whole. The idea that um, speculative genres, fantasy, science fiction, of hardball crime, they do tend to comment on and reflect 
through a broken glass the things that are going on in the real world. You know, you right. can't switch on the news today and fail to be moved and influenced by everything that you see. And all of those things will inevitably, because you can't help it, bubble through in the work you're doing. Yeah. Um, you're sort of right in the sense that when you're doing a, a like a work for a superhero book, for instance, you're it is smart to restrain yourself from running away too far into those kind of quite uh, reflective realities, partly because the readers of those things are often just looking for escapism, right. partly because there's a sort of, you know, corporate um, edge of world that you always have to be a bit careful about straying out of. You don't want to make this a bit too real. It gets dated very quickly if it's going to have a life on a, on a bookstore. All of these sort of real politic ideas that you have to think about when you're approaching these things. But also it's just not necessarily always the place, you know? Yeah. Um, they're inviting me to do some quite serious changes of tone and vibe with The Flash, for instance. But that's not the same as saying, okay, I'm going to turn The Flash into a book where we talk about Brexit and drugs <laughs> and whether or not MAGA is a good thing. You know, that's it's just yeah. not the place or the time. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's all about sort of understanding the requirements of each different project letting it soak into you and then the really tough part is changing gears from one to the other and i'm i'm getting better at it but i'm still still pretty slow oh, i'll think so i think you're doing a great job at it i, I don't <laughs> want to keep praising you <laughs> yeah i'm no good at that i'll start well, like blushing <laughs> but um i was just thinking about how i've been reading a lot of stephen king and right now i'm switching between i'm starting revival uh, which apparently doesn't start as a horror book and but slowly gets into it. Okay. But even when you're reading Stephen King books, it's and he switches from horror to not horror, like with Stand By Me uh, or what's it called, The Body. Um, but you always still feel like the prevalence of his influence on himself as he grows and everything. And I think we see that with your work as well, where we can see where you're growing and everything. And your voice is always there, but it definitely, I think it's very distinct in each book that you do. Well, thank you. That that means a lot. You know, you we were talking about this before, the whole stand behind your work, not in front of it. You know, I, I don't I don't see myself as the sort of, um, you know, beret wearing Gaulois smoking auteur <laughs> who, who is only here to talk about uh, the work as it relates to me. But but yeah, you can't help it if you if you believe in what you're writing and you should, otherwise it's shit, then <laughs> then inevitably the same sort of vibes will start to be felt through your work. I mean, I, I would say this is something that's true for a lot of my favorite writers, the writers that I sort of were, were so influenced by um, Alan Moore, obviously, but like I've become very friendly with Garth and, and you can't read a Garth Ennis book without immediately knowing you're reading a Garth Ennis book, even if yeah. it's about two utterly different things with different moral stories and different settings and different tones, a comedy and a horror, whatever, you'll still know it's a Garth book. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, you, you sort of want to be, you want to be creating a brand without deliberately setting out to be, to build a brand. You know, one of those things is corporate and one of them is just honest. Um, I often say, and again, waffling, forgive me, like on my deathbed, when I'm lying there thinking back on my career, Will the things that bother me be things like 
did you write Batman? Did you <laughs> do a memorable arc of Thor? Did you finally get to scratch the itch and write that character you like or work with that artist? Or will it be things like, did you believe the stuff you wrote? Did you change anybody's life by writing that stuff, including including myself? Hmm. Quite early on in my career in American comics, I wrote a book called X-Men Legacy, which could and probably should have just been just another superhero book. But it, for reasons that we won't go into now, it ended up being a, a book that used as its central metaphor um, the sort of the Marvel mutant notion mm. as a way of talking about mental illness. And I'm still profoundly proud of that book. Within months of the last issue of that coming out, and still up to this day, at least once or twice a year, I'll go to a show and somebody will come up to me, often in tears, and say words to the effect of, you saved my life. And I'm like, no, 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 I didn't stop. That's you're, you're giving me too much credit. I wrote a book that might have made you feel a little bit stronger at the moment when you needed it. It's, it's down to you. You're the strong one, not me. But to what I was saying before, if I'm on my deathbed, that's what I'm thinking about. People who, who were moved and changed by stuff I wrote. So nowadays, if somebody comes up to me, not that they would, and says, hey, do you want to write Avengers? The first thought isn't, yes, because I could really use the paper. It's, <laughs> do I have anything important to say that can only be said through this book? Mm. Um, there's a whole separate conversation which ends in the answer. If you haven't got something important to say about this book, then fucking come up with one. <laughs> but, but, but more often than not, I'll be like, oh, I don't know. Um, Anyway, that's just a little snapshot of, uh, as I get older, the, the harder I find it to justify saying yes to something just because it's a big deal. Yeah. And the more important it feels to to find the opportunities to say stuff. Yeah, that's definitely beautiful. I think, um, I think it's great that you're able to feel proud for your work and at the same time give the power back to the reader. Um, but I think I want to talk one more section about your growth before we could go back to coda and get the spotlight <laughs> yeah. off of you um but you and matias have been working together so often so i'm always curious about the relationship between creators that get that kind of um for lack of a better word i guess dynamic duo type of relationship where you guys keep bouncing together mm -hmm. so how has matias helped you grow as a writer i mean again fantastic question he uh, the short answer is he has helped me chill the fuck out. Um, when, you, when you're a control freak, guilty, in comics, like just twitching the curtain aside for a moment, more often than not, you don't get a say in which artist you're working with. And that's definitely true in Work for Hire. It's also occasionally true in creator-owned books because... Often your publisher will be helping you to find an artist. They'll be bringing you lots of examples, but you can't be like, hey, I want to work with insert giant name here because <laughs> we can't afford it or they're busy or they hate you or whatever it may be. <laughs> um, and so also related, especially if you're working for a, a work for hire company like DC or Marvel, quite frequently your artist doesn't speak a lick of the same language that you write the script in. Right. So... These are all real problems for a control freak. I want to be able to write quite precisely about the way that I imagine 
a page. And P.S. I always start every script with a little note that says words to the effect of, I'm not telling you what to draw. I'm telling you what it looks like in my head. And if you have a better yeah. solution, my God, use it because your instincts will definitely be better than mine. Anyway, the point is, this is all quite difficult for somebody who wants to try very hard to be precise. So my scripts are very long <laughs> wordy, <laughs> and they drive editors mad and they frequently drive artists mad. So whenever I get the chance to work more than once with somebody because the first collaboration has been so perfect, it, it just makes sense to keep using that, that same relationship. I didn't know of Matthias at all before Coda. I had written the first four or five issues when Eric, our editor at Boom, brought me his portfolio and said, I found this guy. I think he'd be great for this. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. He's incredible. Let's go. But it still wasn't until like the last few issues of Coda that I was like, I can probably afford to let him make some choices because he's <laughs> making them already and they're better than the ones I was writing down. And then because... We clearly vibed with each other. The work we were doing was really good. He just understood my voice in a way some artists don't. And I, I kept writing things specifically knowing that he could do it, which is, you know, it's a gambit. If, you, if you're if you in the game of challenging an artist, sometimes they'll be like, nah, and just, <laughs> just fuck it up. And don't draw what's there. And I guess it reached its apogee in uh, Step by Bloody Step. I, I knew he had been so noticed for his work with Coda and then Hellblazer and The Dreaming. We did all those uh, collaborations that it was inevitable that he was going to get pinched by some A-list writer. Um, to his credit, I know he gets a lot of offers. To his credit, he was like, what's next? Si? Because we love working together. But I wouldn't yeah. have blamed him if he'd been like, somebody just dangled a, a literal... <laughs> heap of gold in front of me so let's take six <laughs> months and I'll be back but I knew that the thing that he would respond to best is a challenge and so I set us the challenge of a quite involved emotionally complex story that has no dialogue yeah. knowing that this could only succeed if it was drawn by a genius somebody who can who can make that work and he did you know he did it he did it standing on his head and if you look at the first scripts for coda number one versus the last script for step by bloody step it's gone from like 2000 words per page to like 20 you know <laughs> and there's these incredible pages near the end of step by bloody step there's one in particular that always sticks in my mind where um the meat of the script was that a girl who is carrying this gigantic pointy gauntlet climbs through a mountain wilderness she gets attacked by a pack of wolf-like creatures. She tries to stab them with this thing, but it's too heavy. And in despair, she hurries away. She can't fight them, and she flees. Um, and it was divided into like five or six panels. And when Matty came to draw it, it's like one gorgeous splash of a mountaintop with all these actions happening visibly. And she just jumps on this gauntlet and uses it as a sled <laughs> to sort of slide. <laughs> and that's the sort of um, creative problem solving at the same time as being extremely talented as an artist that, that you want as a writer because it makes every page sing. So to your question, 
it reduces my neurotic desire to control everything a thousandfold when I'm working with an artist that I trust. So much of collaboration is trust and everything about comics is collaboration. That's a great answer. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so we could hop back to Coda. Let's get you off the spotlight for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so in Coda, the, I don't want to say like you're challenging the perception or the general consensus of what magic looks like or anything. I think you are like reinventing and reapproaching it. I don't know if challenge is the right word for that. <laughs> but um, so with this next series in the series, um, how... What has been like your favorite so far revision that you're looking at? Like in, I guess for example, be um, instead of a unicorn, it's a pentacorn. That type of energy I'm looking for. That's a good question. Um, it's difficult to answer without spoiling a lot of stuff. Oh, sorry. Um, I we'll guess one. <laughs> just tell me. We'll cut it off. <laughs> no, no. It's uh, I'm just trying to think of a, a sort of a smart way around. So I mentioned before that there are sort of two quite distinct versions of a new world being promised mm. and hum encounters one of them and circa encounters the other and the one that hum encounters is um it's essentially it's sort of my quite thinly disguised take on messianic fervor the idea mm. of somebody standing up and saying you don't need to worry about your problems because it's all going to be okay in the next life. And uh. without getting too heavy, I, I sort of a bit of a scholar of um, Abrahamic religion and especially early Christianity. And I know mm -hmm. way too much about the, the sort of historicity of all that stuff. And, and that's not where this story goes, because <laughs> that's extremely tedious to most people. <laughs> but um, it's certainly in the mix about how it unfolds and how hum has to deal with it before it becomes a real problem for everybody and at the same time circa's problem the thing that she encounters um and i have to be very careful here about not spoiling anything somebody has invented something a new form of technology that has never before existed in this world and it has the means to change everything and it's not magic it's just science and and mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing for me like the lots of stories are written in our world, sort of urban fantasy stories about the meeting between magic and science. But as far as I know, there's never been a good story in the fantasy genre, which is about the penetration of physical sciences into a magical earth. Um, so it felt apt and thematically it touches on an awful lot of very important stuff that's going on in our world. And again, it threatens to bubble over and become a real problem for the world that Hum and Circa are just trying to be happy in and trying to have their small, contented life in. So those are two examples of, of how you can take something that's quite relevant to a sort of modern way of seeing the world and then twist it quite hard through a fantasy filter so that it, it has something to say that's a little bit bombastic and turned up to 11. Um, the other one that I quite like, which is a much more sort of small detail, there's a, a very early in the story, our characters keep encountering these little like imps, little creatures <laughs> called spregans, which just pop up out of nowhere. They like teleport in like bamf, like little night crawlers. And they hover in the air, like covered in 
tattered bits of paper with like messages written on them. And they just have enough time to scream a message before they sort of melt <laughs> because they're, they're made of magic and that can't exist anymore. And it eventually turns out there are these things called spriggans and they're being sent out by a guy. It's like a, it's like a really twisted uh, PR system mm. where he's got the mother, the sprig mother. She's like a captive and she's just this sort of bubbling, grotesque, perpetually pregnant thing. <laughs> and it's her power to have a child and then teleport it to anywhere in the world so it can scream its message. Just, just enough time to scream its <laughs> message before it pops. It's a really twisted way of sending messages, like long. Like in you know, in yeah. Game of Thrones, they've got the little ravens. Yeah, it's like it's like fuck that noise. That's way too tidy <laughs> and cool. This is a really disgusting version of that. So yeah, that's a that's a fun detail in the first issue. Oh, that's very exciting. <laughs> it's, it's all, I just love your approach to the world. How everything's like, what's going on? Oh shit, that's fucked up. <laughs> like almost, immediately. Um, are there any? Again, I'm trying to like say like uh, avoid any spoilers or anything. But is there any new characters that you could talk about that you're really excited for us to meet? Yeah, a couple. Um, so a lot. One of the things this book does is it digs a little deeper into Hum's past. Like we know that he was um, a, a kind of court bard to one of the big uh, kingly courts of the old world, and that's partly responsible for his utter disdain for any sort of hierarchy or, or monarchical vibes. And the person who arises at the head of this um, messianic movement turns out to be an old acquaintance of his, somebody else he knows from the old days. Um, and I won't go into their, their role in the in the present day story, but in the old world, this guy's name was Mildew, Mildew the Breaker. And a breaker is the person responsible for training like monsters in, in a, in a sort of high fantasy world. The King doesn't ride on a horse. Why would he ride on <laughs> a horse? He rides a Griffin or a Manticore or a hippogriff or a whatever. But as with horses in the real world, these aren't creatures that you can just pat on the head and say, please do a thing for me. Here's a carrot. You have to break them. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's a reason that we say horses get broken it's because you're talking about a herbivorous herd animal being asked to carry a predator around on its back <laughs> and perform <laughs> nicely for it. And there's no way that a horse would do that unless you were able to scramble its mind a little bit, you know, and that's what, yeah. that's what breaking is. And so Mildew the Breaker was the guy whose job it was to essentially traumatize dragons and wyverns and chimeras and cockatrices and basilisks and all the rest of it. So he's a nasty character um, and he's completely reinvented himself in the, in the present, but not that much. He's still got the sprig mother <laughs> sending out her disgusting messenger spawn. So he's still a manipulator. So he's an interesting guy. Um, and then the the other ones that are fun, there's a little group of, they're called nomads, but it's spelt with a G, like a silent <laughs> G, no, you know, they're gnomes, but they're nomads. And they're, they're the ones who bring Circa this new piece of technology. And they're really cute. And you sort of look at them and think, oh, I bet they're really nice. And then you slowly realize what they're up to. And, and it's a bit of a, a rug pull moment. So yeah, that's just to give you a little taster of some of the new faces we've got. 
Those sound very fun. I'm going to forever hate you for making nomads because that's something I'm going to stay up at night thinking, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> it's so <laughs> clever. <laughs> and it's so simple. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> uh, I think we uh, only have time for one or two more questions. So you talked a little bit that you're like interested in Abrahamic religion, but it didn't really come into play for this one. And if Dallas was here, he's going to hate me for not pushing you on that because Dallas is a huge religion guy. Uh, he studied Hebrew and everything. So Sorry, Dallas, when you're listening to this. Um, but what other influences actually came into uh, this volume of Coda? Um, well, oddly enough, this time around, there's quite a lot of, of sort of um, real life stuff. You know, as I've said before, I have I have a couple of kids. Um, there's a whole lot of um, exhausted family dynamic that, that mm. you know any couple any family has to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and i i love for instance i think one of the reasons that saga is such a, a successful book is that it it spreads its tapestry wide but it speaks constantly to love between people and it doesn't disguise the fact that love isn't enough you know mm. sorry john lennon but love is not all you need <laughs> the world would be a very simple place if love was all you need. Um, so, so that's a, a major part of it. Um, also, just a, a sort of a, a, an interested eye in real events and the things that are changing in our worlds and the things that could do with changing. And if you can't sell those ideas as allegories through fantasy, then where can you? You know, so. Yeah. Um, notions of, of sort of people being hoodwinked by big ideas and, and ideas that you can sign your name up to some big movement that will make the whole world better. I mean, this is, that's American politics today. You know, <laughs> that's, you don't need to, to be very astute to see the, the one for ones going on there. And it's the same with the whole kind of technology race, the arms race side of it all. I've become increasingly interested in that. That's, that's sort of partly what um, another of my books, Damn Them All, is about it's it's <laughs> using demons as a metaphor for the arms race, which is not a phrase I thought I would say out loud, <laughs> ever, but it but it sort of works, and that's that's the beauty of all these wonderful speculative genres. You can say a lot of stuff about important real world things through the lens of ridiculous madcap ideas. Um, that doesn't really answer your question, but I'm I'm sort of struggling to answer it without giving too much away. No, <laughs> There's there's a big, um, it's not a twist, but there is a, a heightening of the stakes that happens right at the end of the first issue of Coda that I think will will sort of answer this question far more appositely than I ever could with my mouth. So um, <laughs> yeah, I will swear off from that one. I'm afraid. All right, fair enough. Um, the last question I like to give uh, for interviews is. Um, what comics are you reading right now, besides your own, obviously, that you really want other people to be picking up? Something that is probably maybe going under the radar or something you just like, I love this comic that is from the 60s that no one's reading or I'm just reading right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And generally speaking, my answer would be a sort of exhausted nothing. I have no time. <laughs> Where do people get time to read things? Um, and that's broadly true. Like I haven't I haven't read many comics recently. Oddly enough, so... The, the biggest one is that every single year I religiously reread Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind by Miyazaki, Ooh. like the big chunky box set that yeah. I've got on my shelf because it's 
just such a masterclass in long form storytelling, panel to panel transitions, world building, everything. It's all in there in this one glorious thing. And I know that Matthias is a huge Miyazaki fan as well. So it sort of hits all of those <laughs> notes. There's an awful lot of coda and step by bloody step in that book. So that's a given every year. P.S. Calvin and Hobbes every year, the box set. As Absolutely. Well. Um, silly not to. But um, <laughs> more recently, let's see. I get sent a lot of comics in my inbox to, to review and, and say nice things about two that came up. I don't think either is out yet. So that's good because it can help your listeners build some buzz. Um, one of them is called Petrol Head by Rob Williams and Simon Parr. And it's fantastic. It's a sort of very 2000 AD-esque, angry punk kind of science fiction vision of the future in which robots race cars through dystopic cities um like it's been a long time since i read a like a car based racing comic and thought anything other than this is shit and and this is really <laughs> really well done it's high octane it's just beautiful to look at and then in comes a a story that has deep humanity and deep heart and lots of comedy so yeah i think that's one to watch it's going to be it's going to be quite a big deal i think that's an image book uh and then the other one is by, oh crap, I'm going to have to look the guy's name up, uh, Howard something. It's called Under the Trees Where Nobody Sees. Uh, it's from IDW. Um, I can probably look the, the name of the, uh, the writer up any moment, but um, while I do that, or maybe I won't because I've shut all the things down on my computer for the interview, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'll look, but I'll you look can it Google up. It. You can Google it. Um, I feel particularly bad about that because I just followed the fellow on Twitter to say congratulations to him. I can't remember his name because I suck. But it's fantastic. It's um, the best example I can think of of a book where you think you know what you're getting. It feels like a very twee is not the right word, but you'll know what I mean when you look at it. Uh, kind of Rupert the Berry vibe, a little bit black sad, but it's all very sunlit, golden, honey, sort of small town Americana. It just feels safe and comfortable and incredibly well observed, really lovely dialogue. And then it takes a turn that you did not see coming. And it's, yeah, I don't want to spoil it because I think it's the sort of book that works best when you don't know too much about it. But but I, I think that's one to look for as well. And for listeners, uh, it's written and drawn by Patrick Horvath. Patrick Horvath. That's where I got the Howard from. You yeah. <laughs> Patrick Horvath. Thank you very much. Anytime. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure, and you're a lovely person to talk to. <laughs> um, thank you. Likewise. Is there anything you... I'm sure there are, but was there anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> oh, Christ. Too many things. Uh, <laughs> you, I mean, we've mentioned them all. Coda's, Coda's the, the sort of the big creator-owned book. It comes out literally the same week as Uncanny Spider-Man and... The new Flash number one. Holy shenanigans. Um, I think there's... So we just started a second series of Damn Them All, which is my sort of... It's not Hellblazer, but if you love Hellblazer, you'll love this book. A little spiritual Charlie Yeah. Um, 
And then I think the the fifth of the five books that's been making me bleed from my brain this month will be announced at New York, I think, which is probably oh. going to excite quite a lot of people. Deep breath, go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so no, thank you. It's been a it's been a real pleasure, and appreciate the opportunity to plug it all. But um, if you if you keep letting me talk, I will just keep waffling rather than getting if back we had to the, work. If we had the time, we one hundred percent would let you. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it again. Let's let's. I would love to. Can call and talk about everything else, but uh, Abrahamic religion. <laughs> having a ch- I'll make sure Dallas is there for that tomorrow <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Uh, And thank you listeners for tuning in and uh, come back next week when we're reading some book, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mate.